My mom is from the south, and so whenever I get a chance to be down here, it feels pretty awesome, though I was raised a northerner and uh, currently live in the northeast. But I will say this to uh, your wonderful Pastor Craig, almost 48 hours here, not one glass or offer of sweet tea, and it's really what they promised to get me down here, and none yet. So I'm hopeful for lunch. Before I fly out, a little bit of sweet tea would be awesome, just saying, okay, just saying. My son drinks that stuff by the gallons. So, A pastor and theologian, A.W. Tozer, said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Who we see God to be and how He acts in this world will shape, in turn, who we believe ourselves to be and what we think our role and our reason for being is. Now in the New Testament, there, there's this idea of the church, God's family, being, was that part of the program? Sorry. Being a city within a city. That the church is not something that's set apart, but that we're to be woven into the fabric of the culture of our city, and we're to live as a city within the city, and we're to live our lives in such a way that... We show our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers God's love and what God is really like. And, and we show them what it would look like if they were to live their lives walking in God's way, submitted to Christ, right where they're at. That's how we're to live our lives. In light of who God is, we're to live our lives showing others what He's like, His, His glory. Now, I want to go back to the very beginning of the story, and we're going to, we're going to, kind of, we're going to cover a lot of ground here pretty quickly. Um, in the very beginning, in Genesis, we see that God, a holy God, has created humans in His image, and it says, let us create humans in our image to be like us. Okay? And we were created in His image to walk closely with Him, and then create and manage His creation and each other, to be a blessing, to bring God, His image, out now into the world. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And he, his intention was always that we, humans, would bear his image out throughout the world. Bringing God, bringing shalom, bringing his peace and blessing wherever we went. Now to jump a little further ahead in the story, when God calls a special family, Israel, to be his own, okay, he, he asked them to live amongst the other nations as a kingdom of priests set apart to show the rest of the nations what their awesome God was like. To live out His blessing to all nations. He said, I will bless you to be a blessing. That was His desire for His family. That, that, and then God gave Israel a set of very important rhythms to live in that would remind them of God's goodness but also, as they participated in these rhythms, it would show these other nations how God was. It would show off God. It would show how awesome God was. And it would also show these other nations what a life lived in God's ways would produce. What kind of life you would have. God mandated for Israel, actually, a series of festivals and feasts that they were to live in annually, okay? These celebrations to be participated in rhythm every year, year after year. And those festivals, they were to serve to Israel as both a reminder of who God was 
and a demonstration of how they were to actually live throughout all of the year. Not just during the festival, but it reminded them of who God was and His goodness, and it was a demonstration of how all of life was actually to be lived out. Every day, not just during the feast. And see, all celebrations work this way. To this day, God created celebrations for this purpose. When we, when we have a birthday party for someone, we honor them. We, we say nice things about them. We give them gifts. We, we bring glory to them. In other words, we want, we want others to see how awesome these people are. And hopefully, it serves as a reminder to us of how we hopefully will treat those individuals throughout the rest of the year, right? That's what celebrations are. That's what Christmas is. That's, that's what we do. That's what celebrations are. Both a reminder and a demonstration. Let's take a quick look at these festivals that God gave Israel because I think they're going to they're going to speak deeply into how we get to live as the church today, okay? Now, in Leviticus 23:1 it says the Lord said to Moses, "Speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord. You're to proclaim these as sacred assemblies, meaning these are optional." Okay, Israel, this is how it works for you. These are the appointed feasts. It starts out with sort of an umbrella feast that's actually not annual, but weekly. Verse 3 says, There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You're not to do any work wherever you live. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. So the first command that God gives when he's just about to give them this annual rhythm is he says, but first, I want you to set this rhythm into place. Weekly, set aside time to like turn off your cell phones, turn off the TV, unplug from all the muck of work and life and stress and be reminded of who I am. Be reminded of my goodness, my provision, my grace for you. And then the rest of the week, you, you work out of that rest. You work out of the knowledge of who I am and how I've provided for you. Like, I want you to live in a rhythm of this every week. It's as if God knew we really were going to need this. In fact, that's part of the creational order. Humans are created, and in the very next day, their first day on the job, if you will, day off. Pretty good deal. And see, God created this rhythm. You rest... And out of your rest in me, you work. We kind of flipped that, haven't we? We flipped that. We work, we work our tails off, and then we rest from that. And then there's Monday. And we do it again. And we can't wait for TGIF and, you know. But God's actually, maybe that's why we're such a stressed out people. God actually created us the opposite way. We're to rest in Him. That's the beginning of our week. By the way, Sunday is the first day of the week, isn't it? We rest in who He is, and out of that, we work. And see, this was, this was actually the most mandated of all. The Sabbath festival, feast, rhythm, comes up more than any other. It's part of the Ten Commandments. You know what? And it's not just a suggestion. I, I don't know why we treat it as such. Could you imagine us if we took the other Ten Commandments and treated them as a suggestion? Thou shall not murder. Yeah. Trying to cut back on that this year. <laughs> Thou shall not sleep with your neighbor's wife. I'm cutting that in half. I swear this year. See, we don't take any of the rest of the Ten Commandments as a suggestion, but when it comes to this Sabbath, 
I'm just, I'll just say me, I'm guilty. I am not good at resting and then working from my rest. But God has mandated this rhythm. Now here's the gospel component of this celebration. This points forward to, a, to an eternal Sabbath now that we, we don't set aside necessarily a specific day or time on our calendars. We're actually supposed to now live in light of the eternal rest that we have because of Christ's completed work. And now when we go to work or do any work or chores or create beauty, we do it from a position of, oh, I can rest in Christ's completed work because even if I don't do it that well, the Father now looks upon me with love and acceptance and grace. And I don't have to prove myself. I can't earn anything. I can't add to His love. Wow, that changes how I work. I can have the worst job in the world and even not even be that good at it. But I can work from a position of acceptance and love and rest. That's what the original Sabbath was pointing to. We get to enjoy that now. And when we do, when we're reminded of that, we actually live as a demonstration to others of this great gospel truth. See, if we live freaked out, frenetic lives as Christians, just full to the max like the rest of the world, and then we tell our neighbors, oh, but I have peace in the Lord. And they go like, it don't look like it. You're as busy as me, plus you jam a whole bunch of church work in. And they're like, I don't know if I believe what you're saying. See, when we actually live in God's ways, we are reminded of His goodness, in this case, the cross, and we live as a demonstration to others that it's true, that it's real, that we actually work from a position of rest. Okay, it goes on in verse 4. It says, These are the, Lord, the, the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies that you're to proclaim at their appointed times. So then God mandates these as the rhythm of their life. The first one's the Passover. Okay, you all know the Passover story. Israel, God's family, has been living under horrible oppression as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And in God's grand release of them through a series of plagues where he shows his power and punishes Egypt, a final plague, he says, if you take a firstborn male lamb, one without any blemish, and you, break, and you sacrifice it without breaking any of its bones, then you take the blood from that lamb, go outside your homes, and put that blood above your doors. Put it all around the doorposts. Because at midnight, I'm going to send the death angel through to take the lives of every firstborn in the land. And the Israelites did that. They put the blood of the lamb on their doors and, and death passed over them. And that was the beginning of their release from slavery. God mandated, you celebrate that every year. Now, that was a gospel picture. A firstborn, unblemished lamb of God whose blood covers us. That, that was a picture of Christ. It always was. It was a reminder to them and a demonstration they could now live in freedom and peace. And now so can we. The next one was uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I love this. Let me read a little note on this one because there's some really cool detail that we would miss if we, because we're not Hebrews, okay? This was, a, this was another week-long celebration, the celebration of unleavened bread. So the preparation for searching and removing the leaven, which is yeast, okay, from the house actually begins before Passover. First, the wife thoroughly cleans the house to remove all the leaven or yeast. And, and yeast or leaven was a picture of sin to Israel. Just a little in your life, and it grows and grows and it blows everything up, okay? So she was to clean the house and remove all the leaven. Now, in cleaning the house, the wife is instructed to purposely leave ten small pieces, though, of leaven somewhere hidden in the house. Then the father takes the children along with a candle 
a wooden spoon, a feather, and a piece of linen cloth. And he searches throughout the house with the kids and the candle, right? <laughs> it's awesome. And, and they find the ten pieces of leaven. By nightfall on the day before Passover, a final and thorough search of the house is performed. And at this house, this time, the house is completely dark except for the candles. Once the father finds the leaven, he sets the candle down by the leaven and he lays the wooden spoon beside it, beside the yeast. <laughs> then he uses the feather to sweep the leaven onto the spoon, the wooden spoon, without touching the leaven. Then he takes the feather, the spoon, the leaven, and he wraps them all up in a linen cloth and he casts them out the door of the house. This, for them, was a big deal. For us, What this was pointing forward to was the death of Christ. The wooden spoon represents the tree, the cross that Christ died on. The leaven, the sin, was swept onto the tree, onto the spoon, as part of the ceremony. And that's how it was for us. See, they lived in this reminder of who God was, but it was a demonstration. And this was all looking forward to the reality of Christ. The third feast was the festival of first fruits. So, real quickly, as they would gather in the new harvest every year, the first fruit, the first bit of their crops that came sort of, you know, ripe and ready to go, they would bring it before God as an offering and actually throw quite a big party. It served as a natural, a national remembrance that God once again brought new life, the crops to sustain, to provide, to save them. Of course, the gospel picture is that of this festival, the first fruits is resurrection and new life and provision by God. Jesus is the firstborn of Mary. Jesus is the firstborn and only Son of God. He's the first from the dead. He's the firstborn of many brethren, it says in Roman. And He is the firstfruits of the resurrected ones. Do you see how all those years ago when God mandated this rhythm, He was just saying, this is going to be a demonstration of who I am as best displayed in My Son and on the cross. Fourth feast is the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost was originally the giving of the Torah. When God spoke from a mountain in a cloud and fire to Moses and He gave the laws, the Torah, okay? That was Pentecost, the original Pentecost. Now, we, we translate the word Torah into law. It's not a proper understanding to think of law as do's and don'ts. It's really instructions is a more literal translation. And God gave them the Torah as instructions on how to live and walk in my ways. See, they were coming out of slavery under human oppression, a world system that had crushed them, and God was giving them instructions, the Torah, as a way to now live and walk in His ways and show the world what He was like. When you live in covenant with me, this is how things operate. Now, of course, the gospel to this is looking forward to what we call the day of Pentecost, right? When, when Jesus poured His Spirit out on the church. And no longer would the law be written on tablets of stone, but now the law, the Spirit of God, would actually come to indwell God's family so that everywhere we went, we would know the truth. We would be led in God's ways, be led in the truth. That original pouring out of the law then was a picture of the pouring and the giving of the Spirit of God. Fifth festival was the festival of trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, known as Rosh Hashanah. That's the beginning of their new year. We just celebrated that this week. Or some did. If you're Jewish, maybe you had a little party. I'm not sure. I didn't. Um, 
That was a, that was a picture of a coming king when they would you know feast. They would blow a horn. There was a coming king. It was it was the return of Christ. It was a picture of the return of the forever eternal King. And then there was the Day of Atonement. That was a big celebration. The Day of Atonement was celebrated at the tabernacle once a year. Uh, the place where Israel would bring their sacrifices. There was a special day once a year when the sins of the nation were forgiven. And the high priest, the first high priest was Aaron, Moses' brother. The high priest would, would sacrifice a, a goat for the sins of the nation. And then he would take a second goat known as the Azazel. The word means to take away. And he would put, lay his hands on the head of that goat and, and he would confess all the sins of the nation. And then that goat would be taken away, never to be seen again. Pushed off a cliff, never to be seen. This was a picture of how God was to deal with our sins once and for all. There would be a sacrifice for our sins, for the penalty, but then there would be this understanding that those sins were removed. God doesn't, wasn't going to keep a record of those sins that were forgiven. And what He was saying to us all those years ago is, that is what I'm going to do in the cross. Not only will you not have to pay the penalty, that animal, that innocent one, my son in this case, will take that penalty, but I won't remember your sins. They'll be removed. Do you know that God does not keep a record of your sin? He doesn't see you as the former dot, dot, dot. You know, I forgave that guy's sin. He used to do this. But it's all forgiven now, but he used to do that. You know, back in college, she used to live this way. But I forgave all that. That's God's, God looks at you, and, and if you were to bring up a sin, He'd go, what, what, what sin? Literally. See, we don't do that. We tend to keep a record of wrongs, even if they're forgiven, and not, they, we kind of place them on our forgiven list. But we sort of create for people, they're like the sum of their faults and sins against us, though we've forgiven them. God's not that way. He literally has said they have been put as far as the east is from the west. I don't, I see my son when I see you now. Is that amazingly good news? God doesn't see you as the former ex or like, you know, that thing you did this week that you can't even believe you sinned again. God's like, I already forgave that way before you sinned it and it's as if it never happened in my eyes. And if you want to place blame somewhere, place it on my son because that's why he died. Man, is that good news. That is good news. That's what this Day of Atonement was all about. And then the final feast was the, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, it was called. A Sukkot was a little a hut, a little tent. And that Israel, when they after they left, after the Exodus, after God released them from their slavery, and they traveled for 40 years through the desert, this is what they dwelled in. And what, what was going on then is God said, I will show my presence among you by having a pillar, like, you know, a pillar of cloud above the tabernacle during the day, and a pillar of fire above the tabernacle at night. That's how you'll know I'm there. And if that moves, if I move, pick up, pack up, and follow me. And they did, and they lived in these Sukkots. And God said, I want you to celebrate this, Israel, forever. I want you to remember that you can follow me, that I led you, that I covered you, that I protected you, that I fulfilled every promise to you as I led you to the land of Canaan, of milk and honey. And the Gospel in that is the day of fulfillment that God once again would make His dwelling amongst us. He dwelled amongst them all those 40 years and He wanted them to remember and told them there's a day coming when I will once again dwell amongst My people in bodily form. Look what Revelation 21 says. 
verses 2 to 4. It says, I saw the holy city, that's us by the way, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's what God was pointing to. That is our reality now. In Christ, this is the day we long for and wait for. We sang about this morning together as a family. Now, like I said earlier, God had mandated that series of festivals and feasts for Israel to be participated in rhythm every year without fail. And they were to serve as a reminder of His goodness, His character, and a demonstration of how they could live throughout the year and a demonstration to the watching world. But see, that's the same for us. That wasn't God's old school plan. That was how he created celebration. That was his plan for his family. We now, in Christ, are the completed Israel. We are the same. We are the family of God. And we're to celebrate with a gospel intentionality. In the ways we celebrate, and I know you all participate in celebration, we are also, this is a biblical, godly pattern, are to celebrate with a gospel Picture a gospel intentionality. And when we do, it is the most godly and powerful historical picture of what God is like and how Jesus fulfills all things. Now, we don't all see celebration that way, but we get to. And the reason I took that time to show you this pattern that God was serious about with Israel, He's just as serious today. And it's not that you have to. In Christ, it's that we get to. Okay? The gospel's never, you should or you shouldn't. It's like, you get to. You get to live as a city amongst your city. You get to celebrate in such a way that the gospel is proclaimed. Shouldn't the church be the most celebratory people in the world? Think about it. Like, when people think of Christians, do they go like, wow, partiers. I, I, you know what? I don't know if I agree with those people, but I try everything I can to get on the list if they're throwing a party. Shouldn't that be the case? I mean, what do, we, do we have anything to celebrate? I mean, you know, forgiven of our sins, never to be seen again. Uh, oh, and we get to live forever. I mean, come on. We should be seen as the most celebratory people in our cities. People should think church, party. So, really? Because that's how it was for Israel. Think about it. All those nations are looking down, peering over the hills, and there's that rhythm of celebration. And and those nations are saying, oh, pillar of fire, and there's Israel partying again. What are they celebrating this time? Oh, it's that first fruits thing again. Yep, yep. And their crops come in fuller every year. Yes, ours do. See, that's that's what it's about. Let me me tell you how this starts to play out in real real ways. My wife, Tina, is... um, well, she's just a gift, you know, to me and everybody who knows her. She's she's a chef. She's she. We actually own a little restaurant back in Tacoma, Washington, still. And um, she, a few years ago, decided she wanted to try to single-handedly bring back the dinner party. <laughs> you know, it's like people just eat meals and they do them standing up and they have fast food and like, what happened to like sitting down together and enjoying an evening? And it, my wife throws on occasion, pretty regularly. 
these these like eight course meals. And each course is paired with the perfect matching beverage. They're about a five hour plus evening. It's kind of like Babette's Feast. Have you ever seen that movie? Some of you have seen this movie. This, this French woman in the war, she wins the lottery somehow. Huge bunch of money. She's dirt poor. She spends the whole thing on throwing one party for the birthday of the previous founder of their church. And all the Stoics in the church that are just dead as doornails can't believe she's doing it. And they're all upset about it. But by the end, it's this beautiful gospel picture. That's my wife's dinner parties. I kid you not. And we always do them with believers and not yet believers. And we've had people, I'm not kidding you, weeping at the end, going, we've never been treated or experienced anything like this. And my wife's just like, it's not even a big deal. It's, it's her gift, you know? It's just how she rolls. When we first moved out to start planting churches in Washington State, in Tacoma, we realized we needed to get into a rhythm of celebration with our neighbors to to both be reminded ourselves of God's goodness, but to live as a demonstration of what He was like. And so we decided we would just go ahead and throw a barbecue every Friday night. Every Friday. Now, I know we call it a barbecue. You guys down in the South, I always get a hassle. Like, was it a big smoker and it turned and turned? Well, it wasn't a barbecue then, you know, like... So we grilled out every week, but I call it barbecue. Give me, give me some slack, okay? So we threw a barbecue, a grill, whatever, every Friday. And we would go around and invite our neighbors, little cheesy flyers. Hey, just come and get to know the neighbors, and we all want to love on you. And, and we, we get to know these people. And, and one of the guys that would come, one of the guys that would come all the time was my old buddy Hal, who lived just around the corner. He was old. He was like uh, a million. I don't know. I mean, like... <laughs> Seriously, the hunched over oxygen bottle, hoses, right? But he came to every party. Him and his wife, Gail, was his second wife. And boy, did he talk fondly of his first wife. It was careful. And uh, he had a pub in his basement, a literal like a bar. You know, I mean, like, how did you get this down here? I mean, it was nuts, you know? And, uh, and, and one time I was talking to him, I said, Hey, how are you coming to our Memorial Day party? And he goes, Well, I think so. And he said, you know, I was in World War II. And I said, really? That's awesome, man. And he goes, I still have my uniform. And I said, well, you should wear it to the Memorial Day party. He goes, well, I might. Well, guess what? Here's Memorial Day. Everybody's showing up. And here comes Hal toddling down the hall, you know, the sidewalk, oxygen bottle swinging, full-on World War II uniform. Bowl of potato salad. Perfect. You know, anyway. <laughs> and we're all sitting around in the neighborhood, you know, with like regular neighbors, Hal and his wife, a bunch of my new tattooed and pierced freaky friends from Tacoma. And it was glorious. And right before the meal, I said, hey, I would just love to thank, like, I'd like to, I'm just thankful. How about y'all? You know, and I said, could I, first off, I just want to thank Hal. Hal, all those years ago, you served us. You laid your life and preferences down so that we could be free and actually celebrate like this. It's such a picture of Jesus, Hal. Thanks. Can we just thank Hal? You know what I mean? And everybody's clapping, and Hal is like Barney Fife. You know, buttons, you know, like. And then I just said, thanks God for this awesome weather and our friends and this food, and you are such an awesome provider, amen. You know, and this is all a mixture of believers, not yet believers. It was a, it was a reminder of God's goodness. A picture of the cross, you know, of, of, of a Savior in, in, you know, a little in Hal's sort of service to us. And then, and then a, a demonstration to our neighbors. We did this every Friday that summer. And I, that's Seattle-Tacoma area. If you know what the weather's like there a little bit. 
It did not rain one single Friday. And I'm kind of selfish and lazy at times. I got to where I was praying for a Friday rain just so I could get a week off. It never happened. It never happened. How are you doing at celebrating to the glory of God as a demonstration of the Gospel? What do you think? Have you ever even thought about that concept? That God actually set up that rhythm? See, or are our parties just like any other party that we kind of show up and we're nice to people, but they don't serve as a reminder to us of God's provision and goodness, or do they demonstrate the gospel to others? Isn't it interesting that Jesus' first miracle of his ministry was where? At a wedding party. Three days into this thing, the ginormous vats of wine have run dry. Jesus fixes that. The wine steward is so freaked out. Why would you pull out the best wine at the end? Everybody's kind of, you know, right? See, what he was doing was, I'm convinced of this, he was saying any picture, see, because he's inaugurating the kingdom, any picture you have of my father and his kingdom that is not like, woo, celebratory, you're off base. If you think of my father as this heavy-handed, waiting to crush you, bust you for your... You, his first miracle was at a party. It's amazing to me. What would it look like for us here, for you all here in Charleston, to celebrate in ways that reminded you of God's goodness and were a demonstration to others of the gospel? Let's just think through it categorically. What about in generosity and abundance? When you go to parties, do you, do, I mean, do you like bring it? You know, you think about when when God celebrated and sent His Son to care for us. Did He did He send like He sent His best, His only Son? Talk about generosity when we celebrate. Like bring the best. I'll speak to you, single guys, now. Hey, lay off the half-eaten bag of Doritos. That's not a good contribution. Bring the shrimp platters. You know what I mean? Like Scripture says, be the bringers of the better wine, like Jesus was. I mean, seriously, go all out when you celebrate, when you throw parties. People do notice. Okay? What about, how about when you celebrate, think about being a servant. Christ came to serve us. When you, when you go to parties, do you stick around to clean up? Or do you like, wow, it's awesome and see ya. When we live in Tacoma, we have a hundred year old house. We had the worst oldest kitchen, like, I think left in America in this house. And we're throwing all these parties all the time. No dishwasher. 50, 70 people over weekly. I could tell who the partiers in light of the gospel were because they stuck around to help us clean up, you know? We've, we've got guys in missional communities, these, these groups of people that live in our city as missionaries to different pockets of the culture. And some of these guys were missionaries to the college students. Well, guess what? They would go to these frat parties but they can't participate in all the ways the college kids do, if you know what I'm saying. But they would go as servants. They would go and they would clean up trash. They would stick around to the end and clean up all the mess. They would literally be holding people's heads and wiping up vomit. They would be driving all these people home. Because they wanted to, they wanted to be a demonstration of what Christ is like and how He serves us in our greatest need and mess without shame, without finding fault. And then loving them to the point of being able to then be in their life and declare even greater truths. How are we doing at being servants as we celebrate? 
It's low-hanging fruit. How about treating others as family? People come over to your house for a celebration. Do they feel like super warm and welcome and like they can make themselves at home or do they feel like they need to check their soul at the door? They don't want to get anything dirty, you know? I, I was recently with some friends up here in Polly's Island, Mike and Sally Breen. And they make everybody in their house feel like they live there. It's amazing. They threw, they threw this celebration. It was 110 people, I think, in their house. And everybody was given someone task to do or a chore or clean that or whatever. Guarantee you Sally could have done all of it better than any of us. But she wanted everybody to feel part of the family. And everybody did. And this whole thing, jam-packed in this house, went smooth as silk and it was a, it was a blessing and a blast. Are we celebrating as family? Do we throw parties and actually include the outsiders like we're actually commanded in Scripture? Or do we only invite those who, you know, we kind of dig hanging out with. What about our words when, we, when we're celebrating? Do, do, we, do we entertain gossip? Do we use it as a time to sort of pot up and like go over our woes and chew everybody else out that slighted us or dressed a certain way or I can't believe she said that or she did that. See, that's so anti the gospel. Our words speaking life and restoration and redemption to others. Do we, do we consciously say, Lord, we're going to this birthday party or we're throwing this, you know, graduation party for this, 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 you know, single mom and her kids because she could never afford it? And let our words speak life and love and be a demonstration of your love today. Completely. Like, beyond our ability. We can. We get to. Are we prayerful about our time? Remember, we can live as a demonstration of what our Father is like. To celebrations. Our culture has such a built-in rhythm of celebration. To me, it is the lowest hanging fruit. Think about all the parties and celebrations you already go to without having to throw one. I mean, birthdays and graduations and graduations and graduations and birthdays and Christmas and Easter and, you know, New Year's. We have thrown parties and celebrations. We just make it up. Anything. Just to have people around so we can show them what our Father's generous abundance is like. So that when we tell them about Jesus, they'll believe it because they've seen it. It won't be some abstract. They'll go like, wow. If what you're talking about is anything like that dinner party, I'm interested in hearing more. One of our missional communities was in a neighborhood where it was about 75, 80% single moms. And anytime they would throw, uh, uh, you know, like a, a barbecue, there again, they would throw them out in the front yards because everybody could see. And all the kids in the neighborhood would just show up to eat because they had single parents and their, their moms were working like two and three jobs. So they started noticing too that because the parents were never around and they're barely making the bills, these kids never had graduation parties or birthday parties. So they just started throwing birthday parties for all these kids. Or when they graduate, they throw them a party and invite the moms and the aunts and the grandmas and all that stuff. It was low-hanging fruit to show God's generosity and love and blessing. A demonstration of what God is like. Guess what, though? We always felt like the most blessed ones because the reminder part of it is like, can you believe how much we deserve death and yet God has allowed us to live and have eternal life? Wow, there's a huge party coming, right, when Jesus gets back. Now, I want to say one thing before I close. 
In our culture, there's a huge association with, with celebration and partying and alcohol, right? And for many, especially many within the faith community, Christianity, church, that has been a huge problem and, and can remain a huge barrier to participate, participating in culture. Now, we know that all things were created by God for His glory, including celebration. We've seen that from Scripture. Including alcohol. And here's the thing. All sin, all sin is a perversion of what God created good. It is. Think about it. Is, is, is food good? Do we need food? Is it good? Is it all the colors of the rainbow and flavors? Yes. It's a picture of what God is like. And yet, can food be abused? I mean, look at our nation. 50% of the nation is overweight or obese. Food can be abused. Is sex a good thing? It's a wonderful thing. And those of you who aren't married yet, someday I hope you understand that. And you'll wait for that. But it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But it also can be abused through pornography and, and sexual abuse and all trafficking and all this. See, all sin is something God created to basically show what He's like, but it's been perverted. Something good perverted. So I want to look at this for just a moment because I think it's worth wrestling in our context. What does the Bible actually say about alcohol? Now, there's three views. Okay, Let me just throw out the three most common views on alcohol. There's the prohibitionist view. Okay, then those prohibitionists would say the Bible teaches that alcohol consumption is totally forbidden by Scripture. Okay, many hold to that view. There's the abstentionist that says that although the Bible does not expressly forbid the drinking of alcohol, the consumption of alcohol in our society has been reckless and abused, and therefore Christians should avoid it. And then there's the moderationist view that says that. Alcohol is permitted for Christians as long as it's consumed in moderation and in a careful manner and not in sinful ways. Okay? That's the moderationist. But see, really, the real issue has to do with the attitude of the heart behind it. Let me explain. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.30. If I take part in a meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? This is Paul speaking here. Because of something I thank God for. So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. First Corinthians sixteen three. A little later, Paul says, "Be on your guard. Stand firm in faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. Do everything in love. See, Christ and His redemption." is the point of all celebration. It's the point of all of life. Everything pointed to that. Just like all of our celebrations get to today. And all things in all ways are going to be restored by the Father someday, right? We know this. We saw that in Revelation. Faith, love, and redemption should always be the motivation for everything we do. So if we're participating or not, or not, in the consumption of alcoholic beverages during celebrations, Faith and love and redemption should be our goal either way. Redemption's the point. Not prohibition. Redemption. Not moderation, where I manage myself. But redemption is the point. What are we displaying? See, and here's what I fear. As long as we would make abstaining, right, or re retracting from culture the issue 
then we miss expressing the redemption of that thing. And I'm afraid that the message we proclaim if we abstain from something is we say, that is beyond redemption. In other words, the gospel is huge, but not that big. And the watching world, even if they don't state it or they couldn't articulate it, whatever we would choose, be it alcohol or anything else, that we would say, no, you have to abstain from that. We are loudly saying the gospel doesn't reach that far. There is not redemption for that. And they think, and I wonder what else then is beyond redemption. Our broken, is broken relationships in my life? Oh, that one seems like it's probably beyond redemption. We go, no, it's not. The gospel can redeem that. Marriages. Maybe, yeah, marriages are about redemption. We just have, there's no other choice. We have to get a divorce. That's what my parents did. That's what my neighbors do. That's what we're going to do. How about our sexuality? Our self-image, identity, addictions, fears. Uh, see, anything we abstain from and say it's beyond redemption, then everybody else says, well, then so is my particular thing. And we're to be not only people that are being redeemed, but we're supposed to be redeemed bringers of redemption. Does the way we celebrate and eat and drink remind us of God's continued blessing and bring and display what redemption looks like? See, abstaining from a party shows none of that. Going to a party and getting blasted and being just like the world and being drunk, you know, does none of that. Showing what redeemed celebration looks like does that perfectly. If we abstain, we confuse the world. We say that redemption doesn't reach that far. See, we live not only the experience of redemption, but we are bringers of redemption as well. Now, I know that some, probably some here today, have actually abused alcohol to the point that they really should abstain. It's true. My father was an alcoholic. My grandfather died at 36 of alcoholism. But even then, remember it's the attitude behind it, even then, for those who really should abstain, because they've abused it and have no self-control in that area yet, even that can be a reminder and a demonstration. A reminder that I need, I need God in this area still. I'm not a completed work. And I'm going to demonstrate a submission to His will and His glory. Because, see, that looks more like redemption than if I'm drunk at your party. And abusive. Or, you know what I'm saying? Or out driving and killing somebody. So, either way, it's the heart behind it. I'm not here advocating drinking or not. What I'm saying is, we are both being redeemed and we need to be the bringers of redemption. That is a heart issue. Followers of Jesus need to so... We need to so inhabit our cities, our neighborhoods, our celebrations that people would know what it looks like to be submitted to Jesus. That they would know what it looks like to be a Christian that can have a blast and celebrate and redemption is happening in their lives. And like I said, Jesus, His first miracle, He demonstrated, you need to understand my Father's heart. He is for you. There is a consummation coming when all things are going to be redeemed. And the King of Kings is coming back to rule and to reign. And we will celebrate forever. 
Let's live our lives. Let's celebrate in light of the Gospel. I want to encourage you, with, with the fall coming and all the different celebrations that are coming, what low-hanging fruit? Ask the Spirit of God to show you. How can this celebration both serve as a reminder to us of God's goodness and a demonstration to everyone else of what Christ is really like? Let me pray for us that that would be true. Lord God, I love you today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given us such clear pictures throughout all of Scripture of your heart, of your provision, and that it all pointed to Jesus, Lord. May we live in such a way that it all points to Jesus, both for ourselves and for others. Lord, may we be reminded of who you are and what you've done, and may we live as a demonstration of that in everyday life. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.